quote Luke Cage, I'm just about sick of having to buy new clothes. Hi, my name's Sanjay Felcher. Welcome to Nerd Out. My co-host today, as always, is the wonderful Rob Lloyd. It's a pleasure to be here with you, sir. A pleasure and an honour. And we are indeed going to be having a look at Luke Cage today. We're going to be doing a full spoiler review, so if you haven't seen it, make sure you read the description and uh, jump forward a bit to avoid the spoilers. One bit of feedback we did get from last episode, and of course you can send your feedback in via Facebook. We have a Facebook page, the link is in the description. We also have an email, feedback.nerdout at gmail.com, and we got a bit of feedback just basically asking us if we could give star ratings for the stuff that we review, so we're going to be trying to do that in the future. Uh, Rob, what what star rating would you give Doctor Strange and Red Dwarf, which we looked at last episode? Well, I like, uh, the star ratings is a bit generic. Star ratings are a bit has-been. It's a little bit, you know, look a little bit old school, Sandro. So let, okay. let, let's go for something a bit nerdy. Let's go for a bit of a, let's go for a, a, a seven samurai rating. So if it's like a, if it's seven samurai, it's a, it's a masterpiece. It's like Kurosawa's film, which was then copied by uh, by the Magnificent Seven and then rebooted in the Magnificent Seven from this year. Mm. So Seven is a perfect film, television show or book or whatever we're reviewing. Um, and so, like, you know, Zero is the lowest of the lows. So, yes, for, for Doctor Strange, I'll give Doctor Strange about, ooh, I'm going to be a bit tough. I'll give it three out of Seven Samurai. Ooh, Okay. What about you? Uh, for Doctor Strange, I really enjoyed it. I wouldn't say it was marvellous, uh, but I wouldn't say it was terrible. So I'd probably give it... Um, well, I think I'll go for 4.5. And you're, you, not only are you going high, your voice, voice was going higher as well. I Indeed! Thought... My voice broke. Uh, which... <laughs> <laughs> Normally your voice breaks, you know, the other way it goes deeper. I think you've you, you've done reverse puberty. There we go. <laughs> we've done something. Our first on our second podcast, we've actually had a human being go backwards with puberty. So uh, <laughs> congratulations. Plus the fact you've given you know, half a samurai as well. So you used your katana blade to cut one of those samurai in half exactly. and um, used that for a rating, yep. um, which is good. <laughs> and um, for, for Red Dwarf, Red Dwarf Season 11, I'll um, – I'll give that uh, five samurai out of seven. I'm being very generous with Red Dwarf. Uh, I think I'm still very much in the afterglow of having uh, that out-of-body experience going, oh, my God, I'm actually laughing at a Red Dwarf episode, and it's genuine. So, yeah, five out of seven samurai for uh, Red Dwarf season 11 so far. Agree. I'm going to give it five out of seven as well. That's exactly the, the, the number that I was thinking. So we're on the same page with, with Red Dwarf, which is good. Great. Great start. Great start to this uh for this second endeavour into podcast world. Indeed. Now, uh, let's continue going further and further into the the dark, uh, humid world of podcasts. <laughs> I didn't know where you were quite going with that, Sandra. I'm going dark, humid, moist, a little bit sweaty. I'm going, yeah, that pretty much personifies the podcast in, uh, in very visceral form. Thank you so much for that. It was like a, a Frank Miller story. It was that Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Frank Miller, we are directed by Zack Snyder. <laughs> with, with help from Robert Rodriguez as well. Yes, yes, of course. And a cameo from Quentin Tarantino in that one scene in which we're driving a car. <laughs> yeah, that, that's when we make Nerd Out the movie, we're going to need all those guys involved. Indeed. Um, what I was getting to was eventually asking the question, what 
have you been consuming lately, Rob? Well, what I've been consuming lately, I've been uh, uh, reading. I've been reading a little yeah. bit. Uh, I finally picked up a copy of the definitive uh, Jim Henson biography written by uh, Brian J. Jones. I've, uh, it's been on the cards for years. People have been saying there's been no definitive book on the life and times of Jim Henson, the creator of Muppets, Fraggle Rock, The Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, The Storyteller, um, many other uh, amazing creations. Sesame Street as well, uh, one of the nice. co-creators. Brought the mu- didn't create Sesame Street, but he brought on his uh, Muppet influence, and that shaped a lot of the early days of the Muppets and pretty much made it the success it was. Um, so I've been wanting a biography about him for years because he was one of my idols. My comedy influence is all from the Muppets. So <laughs> subtlety, um, you know, realistic comedy stylings uh, went out the window as soon as I saw uh, the Muppets uh, grace the stage. So... Um, this, this book has been a very welcome uh, inclusion into my library, it, uh, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's painstakingly researched. It goes through uh, every aspect of his life from his early days, um, the start of his career on television with Sam and Friends in Washington. Um, he never wanted to be a puppeteer. He, was, he just was fascinated by television, and when he got in in the 50s, it was that you know, that first uh, wave of television after, after World War II, so everything was fresh and new and a lot of mistakes were made and so he learned from that on uh, community television in uh, uh, Washington DC. We started out with Sam and Friends and then just grew into this um, phenomenon uh, and you know created some of the most you know iconic characters and some of the most beloved uh, stories and, and shows of, of uh, the last 30-40 years. So it's a beautiful book, beautifully written, a lot of um, interviews and and um and contact with all the children uh, all of jim henson's children his surviving family members the muppets uh uh muppeteers and uh people within the company that he ran uh from people who have now passed on sadly but all their archival interviews that they've done uh it's an extensively researched book and just absolutely beautiful it's a tribute to not only Jim, but his company and his family and the legacy that he's left behind. So, so I've, I've been reading that and it's absolutely beautiful read. And uh, that's an easy seven out of seven samurai. Um, it's done in such a beautiful manner. It's got a great matter of fact approach to it. So uh, there's no, no flowery uh, vocabulary, no over exaggeration of anything. It's quite powerful in just how straightforward it is. So um, it's quite tender at the start when he was growing up and quite tragic dealing with like the loss of his brother when he was very young. And there's stuff that I didn't know about because he was such a private man about his marriage breakup and um, and uh, how he was as a person within his company and the issues he had with who owned the rights to the Muppets. Um, and then when it moves into the, the final uh, you know, act of his life, which I wanted to avoid, even though everyone knows what happens, you know, he yeah. died. 53 in 1990 but it's written in that same matter-of-fact way and that makes it even more heart rendering you know just wrenches your heart out because it goes through the surgeries he went through what happening how his body was decaying and it isn't mm-hmm. done in any exaggerated way it, there's no it's just straightforward matter-of-fact and that makes it even more powerful so it's yeah it's uh, it's highly recommended and um uh, you know anybody who's a fan of puppetry of television of of, of, of Jim Henson, of the Muppets, it's it's an essential read. Definitely sounds like one I'll have to check out. I'm quite a big Jim Henson fan. I pretty much 
grew up watching The Muppets and Sesame Street and all those type of shows. So I'll definitely have to check that out. Do you have a um, Do you have a personal favorite? Do you have a favorite uh, Jim Henson uh, vehicle? Like, a, are you a Fraggle Rock fan? Are you a storyteller? Are you Dog City? Are you um, Yeah. What What's your uh, What What's your go to Jim Henson experience? Um, probably the Muppets, but I did quite like Fraggle Rock growing up. I haven't revisited it in years, but it's one that I have some very fond memories of. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, you know, the Muppet Show, obviously, and Muppets Tonight, which came out when, in the 90s, was very much out-and-out comedy. But a lot of people don't realize Fraggle Rock wasn't made really as a comedy. It had funny moments, but it was yeah. very much a, you know, a, a kid television show with drama and intrigue and trying to deal with politics, the environment, um, uh, trying to deal with multiculturalism and all these massive issues. Jim Henson's uh, pitch to his staff when he said about Fraggle Rock, he said, let's do, a, let's make a TV show that, you know, brings peace to the world. And so that's what Fraggle Rock is. A lot of people go, well, it's all just wacky and zany. But when they actually watch Fraggle Rock, they go, oh, this is actually not as ha-ha funny. It's quite a deep show. And it still is. It holds up very, very well. Um, for me, my personal favorite Henson thing of all, uh, it's, it's tough because I, I love, you know, when he experimented outside of the Muppets with Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. But for me, the storyteller, which is one of the last things he did, and he won many Emmys for it, which he uh, co-did with Anthony Mangella, who wrote all the stories. And Mangella went on to mm. be quite prolific with stuff like The English Patient and uh, other stuff like that. He died quite young, sadly. But, yeah, the storyteller had John Hurt in the lead telling all these old classic uh, fables from, from Europe and, and some of them are, you can recognize as being inspired, that Cinderella was inspired by or all that type of stuff. And so they only made six episodes of it or six or seven. Um, but, yeah, it, incredible use of puppetry and, and, and visual effects. This is before CGI, really. So it was, um, that's, it, that's a, a testament to his skill and that brings all of his you know love of television and effects and puppetry and acting and all that type of stuff and mythology so yeah storytellers for me but enough about what i've been consuming what about you sandra what have you been consuming i have been watching the new bbc america version of the much beloved douglas adams book Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. It's the brand new version of it. It stars Samuel Barnett as Dirk Gently and the one and only Elijah Wood as his sidekick, Todd. The show has been created, written, and showrun by Max Landis, who people may know from um, the film last year, American Ultra. That's his big breakout film but i think he also wrote the story for one of my personal favorite not technically a superhero movie uh chronicle which i which i really enjoy i'm not sold on samuel barnett as dirk gently just yet i'm not sure if it's because of the writing or his portrayal of the character um it's okay i'm I'm not that familiar with Dirk Gently, so maybe I need to go back and watch some of the older shows to actually understand what the previous versions of this character has been. But there's still elements of it that I'm not 100% sold on. Yeah, well, I mean, Dirk Gently is um, an interesting beast in in relation to the works of Douglas Adams because a lot of it is heavily uh, inspired by a previous story that he wrote, um, which he actually wrote for Doctor Who. Mm. For when he was actually script editor in the late seventies, 
Um, and that story was called Sharda, for those of you that don't know. It's a quite a infamous story within Doctor Who because it was meant to be the final story of uh, the season with Douglas Adams' last story as script editor and Graham Williams' last uh, story as uh, producer. And they together they did one of the best stories of the Tom Baker era called City of Death. Um, and so this was meant to be their big swan song. It had all the elements that made their season so unique. It was comedic, big, bold ideas and stuff like that. However, halfway through production, uh, as wanted to do many times in the 70s, there was a big industrial strike and all the workers at the BBC just walked off set. So they'd only filmed about maybe 30 or 40% actually of the material, a lot of a couple of studio uh, scenes and a bit of location work. And so it was put on hold and then they were hopefully going to try and come back and do it and then it just worked out that um, there was never going to be a, a chance to mount everything again. So that story was scrapped. Yep. Um, and a lot of the ideas in uh, Sharda, Douglas Adams took and then chucked into Dirk Gently. Um, so as a Doctor Who fan, a lot of Doctor Who fans have a sort of like a soft spot for Dirk Gently because there are so many elements that connects to, to Doctor Who. Max Landis, he's definitely gone for a very, not necessarily a dark, but quite bizarre take on the world. The music is really weird. And then when combined with the show, it makes this kind of uneasy feel while watching it, which I didn't get with the 2012 TV show, for example, which kind of followed the same structure as Sherlock. Um, I've never actually read the original Dirk Gently novel. I have read um, parts of it, but I've never read it all. It's one of those books that is on my list, so I'm not that familiar with Dirk Gently, aside from the 2012 TV show, which has which wasn't that well regarded with fans. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, we uh, we look forward to hearing more about uh, Dirk Gently as the as the series develops. Yeah, definitely. Um, so far, I'd probably give it probably three, maybe three and a half out of seven. Um, I'm going to keep watching it, and I'll see what it's like at the end. It's interesting. I I'll say that much. I'm enjoying it, but I'm not loving it yet. So with that said, let's now move on to the main review, the main feature review, which is Luke Cage. But before we do that, I thought we might just give a quick rundown of what our thoughts were for the two previous Netflix Marvel programs. One of them is, of course, Daredevil. We've gotten two seasons of Daredevil and, of course, the one season of Jessica Jones. Uh, Rob, what has your experience been with these two programs? I was I was very uh, very intrigued when they announced that Netflix was going in partnership with uh, Marvel Studios to create these ground-level, is what the term is now, the ground-level or street-level uh, heroes of the Marvel world who are kind of dealing with the day-to-day -day world that the Marvel Universe has set up. So while Captain America, Thor, and those guys are dealing with aliens and the global issues in the cinematic world, down at the ground level, they're, they're dealing with the day-to-day nitty-gritty. So it came out with season one of Daredevil, and there was a lot riding on it because there was a lot of negativity um, connected with the character after the uh, disaster that was the Ben Affleck film from <laughs> the early noughties. And so it, it hit the ground running. It had, you know, a great, great team behind the scenes and it had a very clear focus and a vision, uh, great casting, beautiful, beautiful performances from all involved. And one of the things that the cinematic universe of Marvel hasn't been able to achieve past Loki was a well-rounded, sympathetic, but thoroughly evil 
a villain. And that's what the, the Netflix series have been able to develop and what a lot of people are appealed about with the Netflix series is that their villains are given the time to breathe and develop and you show their good side as well as their bad as opposed to the, you know, the quite, you know, myopic view of character villainy mm. that they have in cinema world. So first up they have uh, Kingpin, who is played by Vincent D'Onofrio and his performance was outstanding. In um, Jessica Jones, they had Mr. David Tennant playing um, Kilgrave, who brought new levels of creepy but also these elements that you almost saw why or what happened, or you can understand why he is so messed up. And so, and with and with uh, Luke Cage, they continue on that tradition with um, Black Mariah and and Cottonmouth. So, so yeah, I've been I've been a fan of the the Netflix series. I was a huge fan of Daredevil, and I found season two of Daredevil carried on um, from the amazing work done in season one. I like where they're going. They did great stuff with Punisher and Elektra. Um, Jessica Jones was an outstanding series, very dark, very mm. intense, very emotionally draining. Um, but you know, some of the best work that David Tennant's done. And and then we get to 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 Luke Cage, which we're just about to talk about. And what was your what are your thoughts on the lead up to uh, to this third season? We've still got like Iron Fist, which has just finished filming, and that's yep. going to be coming out early next year, which is the third part, and they're just about to start filming as well. Defenders, which is all the street level heroes getting together. So Daredevil, mm. Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, and uh, Luke Cage all joining up to uh, take down Sigourney Weaver, apparently. Yes, and we're um, also getting The Punisher next year as well. He's got his own spin off, which I think started filming a month ago, which is very exciting. So, yeah, what, what were your thoughts on, um, on this Netflix connection with the Marvel street level world? I was very excited when, when they announced it they did say that they would have a series of four shows leading up to the defenders and the moment that i heard netflix i immediately thought they're going to go darker then the moment that the first trailer for the daredevil came out i was uh, pretty much sold and that first season was incredible just charlie cox as daredevil was incredible his portrayal was um just perfect like now compared to of course the Ben Affleck version, which was kind of like this weird uh, action movie hybrid, trying to make you care about the characters, but you didn't. Whereas Charlie Cox is so believable as Matt Murdock um, that it was, I was just completely sold. The same with Fisk. Then they had the first season of Jessica Jones, which uh, was my favourite show from last year. Um, I did a top ten program, Jessica Jones did top that list coming in at spot number one. I thought it was perfect just from Christian Ritter's performance as Jessica Jones and the amazing performance that David Tennant gave. I would probably say this is my favourite role that he's ever been in. There was a point in the show in which I actually thought that Jessica was the crazy one. Like, David Tennant's performance was so convincing that, that I thought, well, maybe maybe he's the good guy here. But of course he wasn't, but maybe he is. And um, yeah. I absolutely loved the first season of Jessica Jones. I'm still skeptical about a second season. I'm not sure where they can go, um, but I am excited for it nonetheless. And then the second season of Daredevil came out earlier this year, and I really enjoyed it. The Punisher was fantastic. The same with Elektra. Um, I wasn't... I thought that the season perhaps was a bit too short. They tried to tackle a lot in that second season, and at times it was a bit confusing to follow. Uh, and I like how season two was kind of the Empire Strikes Back 
The first one is the origin story. The second one introduces a whole bunch of new characters, has a bit of a twist in there, and then I'm guessing what could be the Defenders or maybe season three is going to be the big finale. So they kind of set up this cool trilogy story with Daredevil there. And uh, yeah, then that leads us into Luke Cage. Are you ready to get stuck into the review for uh, Marvel's Luke Cage? I am. Like, Luke Cage was introduced in um, in Jessica Jones, and for those of you who's read the comic books know that um, ultimately Jessica and Luke you know, get together, they get married, they have yep. a kid, um, and you know, they have various roles and associations with various different tiers of the Avengers. Mm. Um, and so I was quite intrigued because I, I found Luke Cage um, – you know, uh, he existed within the show, and but there was nothing that really drew me to him. Um, um, you know, him and Jessica had this sort of like damaged relationship; they're drawn to each other, and then that was torn apart. But I wasn't sure how uh, Mike uh, Coulter could hold an entire series on his own, and whether that character was strong enough to power on through, uh, you know, the thirteen episodes that was um, season one. Before we jump straight in, I do just want to say, spoiler warning, this will, will be a full spoiler review of the first season, so if you haven't seen it, jump into the episode description and go forward to the time signature uh, for the next segment if you do want to avoid spoilers, and I do highly recommend avoiding them if you haven't seen it, because there's some very nice twists and turns in the first season. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> But for me, I'll, I'll start with a general view, and I'll find out your view, and then we'll go deeper. I was drawn in, but I was kind of in the end. As it went along, I got more and more disappointed. So I didn't, I wasn't as invested in the show like I have with uh, the previous Netflix Marvel characters. It's always the case of these new shows when they bring in really interesting characters and then kill them off. You're there going, that's a big bold move, and it sort of like shows that you know no one's safe within a show, but especially if you're killing off incredibly strong characters who are actually interesting to watch, you better have just as interesting or even more engaging characters to keep you interested. And unfortunately for, for Luke Cage, that didn't really happen. They killed yeah. off an amazing character, Pops, who was only in the first two episodes, introduced his backstory, where he's came, what he is, and how he stands within the Harlem world. Having him killed off, which had ramifications for the remaining characters, but there was a definite gap left in the, the story with that character gone. And then the, the main villain who we thought was going to carry us all the way through the end, the big spoiler halfway through is that, you know, that character is killed off. Cottonmouth is killed off, who was a fascinating character to watch. Damaged, brilliant, um, flawed, all this type of stuff, manipulative, uh, proud. Mm. And with him being killed off, you're there going, wow. This is a huge move. So led uh, led for you know Mariah to step up, played by Alfre Wooder, who's an incredible actress. Uh, her rise was pretty much a, a generic sort of like you know avoiding your responsibility to be consumed by darkness. Mm. But then the big ad was revealed, who was a uh, Diamondback, and he for me was such a disappointment. Yeah, such weak character, no range, no depth, no. You know, he had this deep connection to, to to Luke Cage and nothing was explored by it. They had these scenes of flashbacks in the final episode about how they used to help each other with boxing and stuff like that. Oh, well, you know, Diamondback helped Luke Cage, you know, 
sort of like mentored him in boxing. And that wasn't really incorporated in the final battle. It was just kind of flashback. These, they didn't, like in the Venn diagram of Luke Cage, they didn't intersect at all. Yeah, uh, the introduction for Diamondback was really weird because I'm not that familiar with Luke Cage. I know a lot of his like later stuff when he he's married to Jessica, but not like most of his earlier stuff. And when Diamondback first shows up on screen, it was this big moment, and I was like, "Am I supposed to know who this person is? Was he uh, is did, did this actor pop up in episode four or five? Like back then." Uh, the music was so like, da-da, it's this guy. And I'm like, well, who is he? And then you finally find out three episodes later in the final episode, and you're like, oh, okay, well, that's who he is. That now makes sense. But the structure for Diamondback really made no sense for me. Yeah, I mean, so I was I was kind of disappointed by it. How about you, Sandro? What what did what did you think of Luke Cage? I liked it, didn't love it. I have to agree. Um, I enjoyed Mike Holtz's performance in Jessica Jones as a supporting character, although I did think his storyline in the finale was a little bit weak. Um, but I enjoyed the show. I thought that a lot of the twists and turns were entertaining. I was kind of like, from the first episode, I was kind of like, okay, I'll see where it goes. And then the second episode happened in which Pops gets gets killed off. And I was like, oh, okay. This is really interesting. So I was kind of told, and my uh, attention was at peak capacity, and then it kind of drowned off slowly after time until about episode six, and which I think that's when Cottonmouth gets killed off. And I was like, oh, once again, attention was peaked, and then just kind of drowned off until Diamondback came back. So, so my attention for it was kind of like going up and down. I'm very torn on how I feel about it. Story-wise, I thought that the series was too long. It was the complete opposite for what Daredevil Season 2 was. It was like I felt like they had so many episodes, not enough story, which did lead to some pretty good performances from Mike Holter and uh, Simone Missick, who plays Misty Knight. And then once Rosio Dawson came in as Claire Temple, she was a massive part of it and a massive highlight for me. But... I don't think they had enough story in there to fill all 13 episodes, and that was my major problem with it. I did like how some of the episodes had the flashbacks, though. Um, my personal favourite episode is that one that completely takes place in the prison, in, in which Luke Cage does get his powers, and of course that one scene in which he's dressed up in his original costume is just like, what is this? This is, this is stupid. And that was a nice laugh. I was kind of disappointed by the series as a whole. I do have to agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the character came out of the 70s with a very much that black exploitation era of cinema. So, you know, Pam Greer's got her massive break as... Yeah, in those type of movies that Jackie Brown, that Quentin Tarantino did mm. back in the 90s was like a homage to. So it was very much inspired by that era, um, that sort of like, you know, black exploitation and take, white people taking advantage of black culture in America and turning it into a film series. And so uh, it seemed like the, the, the most natural uh, style to do it in. So it was very much in that style. The theme music, the mm. way it's very much, you know, even the dialogue and the way the characters are interpreted is very much in that black exploitation style. The, you know, the wah-wah pedal going on at the end of the credits was, um, that was cool. Very, yeah. Uh, uh, and so a part of me was there 
they're going, this is the only way it could be done. But then was kind of a part of me going, oh, does it come across as a bit insincere? Is it pushed too hard? So is, is, is it is it pushed down our throat, you know, rammed down our throats? Kind of like at the end when it kind of complete, you know, the whole point was, you know, what's the scariest thing for, for a white American? A, bu- a bulletproof black man in a hoodie. And so they're going, okay, that's the issue. That's kind of what's explored. And then in the last second last episode, they've got, you know, a rap singer singing a song about it. So it's like this whole meta eating mm. its own t- referential thing, which was kind of they pushed it way too far and self-referential in itself. I feel like it might be a case of style over substance. Like it feels <laughs> like a Robert Rodriguez film compared to a Tarantino film. He's got the style yeah. there, but I just don't really care about the characters or the story. Yeah. Um, I mean, and they had this, a stellar supporting cast. They're always able to draw good cast for these Netflix series. Yeah. Um, so Alfre Wooder was a standout. She's, you know, been around for, for decades as an incredible actress and seeing uh, her character development was a fascinating process. Uh, Mike actually did very well. I was, uh, Mike Coulter did very well to see his character evolve and the range. Rosario Dawson is one of the best actors working at the moment and, mm-hmm. you know, she should have been nominated for seven Oscars by now. She brings so much to – she's done some rubbish roles and some rubbish films and she's always a standout in all of them. Yeah, uh, and so her be this linchpin in the, in the Netflix series has been a, a smart move because, you know, she's – a talented actress. And for me personally, it's amazing to see uh, Frank Whaley, who was a huge star in the 80s, who was uh, in the early, well, the 90s, actually. He was like the go-to, you know, nerdy type character in, in films like Career Opportunities with uh, uh, Jennifer Connelly. And he was in The Doors. He was in A Field of Dreams. Uh, to see him being given this role as the detective scarf was great. And he played it beautifully. Uh, I kind of picked that he was going to be corrupt because I'm there going, oh, he's far too nice, he's far too good, I'm liking him too much. <laughs> yep, you know, it's the whole thing. You give a character a bit of backstory and then you go, well, you know, they're going to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, for me, yeah. one of the major standouts in the cast is probably Cottonmouth. Ali Ali, yeah. He was, yeah. He was incredible at Cottonmouth. Great range of, of uh, you know, how his character ex- you know, is explored. Yeah, um, um, and I know him best as... Remy from House of Cards, he's in the first... I, I think he's still in the show. I'm not sure if he's coming back for, for season five. He was a massive part of the earlier seasons. And in that, like, he p- plays a very kind of quiet, nice man, whereas in this, he's the complete opposite. Uh, and just to see his range as an actor um, with this particular show, uh, I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I mean, casting was great. There's some beautiful moments in there. Um, but in the end, it kind of just fizzled, fizzled out, you know, yeah. and just to have – it wasn't even, you know, at the end, it was kind of like there was no real revelation. There was no connection to the flashbacks. It's just a case of, okay, we'll just beat up Diamondback until he's completely exhausted, and that's it. They're mm-hmm. going, okay. It was, but it wasn't very clever as well. Like they mentioned early on stuff like, you know, he's bulletproof. Okay, well, have we tried drowning him? Have we tried setting him on fire? And I went, ooh, okay, that's a setup for what's going to go later on. No, 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 no. What's their solution? Okay, let's get an alien bullet. That's the only thing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but I did like, compared to that, after this, you know, disappointing climax of the fight in the streets of Harlem, I did like the fact that, you know, he finally stops running. 
he's done all this good and Luke finally accepts he's got to go back to prison. And so that downbeat ending of him being driven away in, you know, the, the cop car being taken to prison was actually quite cool and quite, you know, within the realms of that, you know, 70s urban drama mm. black kind of world. And that was him really stepping up and facing his responsibility as a hero, which was which was a great way to end the show in that downbeat type of, of fashion. Yeah, we're looking forward. If they do decide to make a second season, what uh, what would you want to see in, in that as compared to this first run of 13 episodes that we're talking about? Well, uh, yeah, I don't know much about the the character's backstory. I, I've never read the comics. But, so, but focusing more on the limitations of, of Luke, but also, you know, what he's, uh, what he's capable of. I mean, I know in the comic books he did form a group that were heroes for hire, mm-hmm. and that's what he's known as, you know, hero for hire, but he actually, they started working as, a, you know, a street-level band of Avengers who'd go out and help you if you can pay. And that was a part of what Luke Cage did for, you know, uh, a little bit of his time. So if that comes into play, how is that going to affect how he's been in the past season about, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll help out, but take no money for it. But he, you know, and that urban legend that he has within the streets is something that the other characters don't really have, like Jessica Jones or um, or Daredevil. So exploring his role within the community, it's kind of cool. He's the face of all that's good in um, in in Harlem, and like they try to discredit him and then try to manipulate him as well, which is kind of a, a good thing. So I'd like to see more of his role within the community and also tie-ins with the other characters within the Marvel world because he's a big part of that. He's a big, you know, like you said about Doctor Strange, who's a team player, Jessica Jones and especially Luke Cage is a team player as well. While the mm. big eighth-grade players are off saving the world, Cage is always there making sure the Avengers are held together and strong and, you know, just a, a solid representative for, for the squad. One of my favourite parts of this, much like Jessica Jones, how they handled his powers. Um, Luke Cage, while the fight scenes, uh, probably aside from the final one, are quite cool, I like that the way that they hurt Luke Cage as a character is by affecting those around him. And that is really what Luke Cage is about. It's about his family, and it'll be really cool to, um, to see that. Instead of him fighting Diamond back in a suit well, with, yeah. with alien guns, wasn't it? It was just a weird suit. It looked weird, and you know, it's kind of like the first time the Daredevil suit showed up at the end of season one. You're going, oh, oh, but then they fixed it for season two, and the Daredevil suit looked a lot better. Yeah. You're there going, oh, it just just doesn't. It kind of doesn't. No, oh, that's oh, go back to the drawing board. Try again and come back with something better. Yes. Uh, so what would you rate Luke Cage, Rob? All in all, I'd, I'd give Luke Cage, um, yeah, three uh, three out of seven samurai. Yeah, I was, it, it, yeah, it was very Doctor Strange for me in the case of, it started, there's some great elements, but overall I was kind of left wanting, which is a shame. But yeah, it's definitely the weakest of the Netflix series so far. Yeah, yeah definitely. I'm, I'm going to go the same with Doctor Strange. Wait, no, <laughs> I gave 4.5. So I'm going to give this one 3.5 because I'm very forgiving when, when it comes to Marvel. I don't know why, but I am. <laughs> oh, okay, so we're not... We're not we're, okay, so you're, yeah, half a samurai up on me. That's that's good. <laughs> um, 
that's our review of Luke Cage. Now, the next show we are getting on March 17th, in fact, well, I think it'll be the 18th here in Australia, is, of course, Marvel's Iron Fist. Are you looking forward to this one, Rob? Um, look, I, you know, I've, I've seen the images of Iron Fist. Uh, the, the costume's very out there. Uh, I'm not too sure about I think it might be tied in with the mystical type stuff, which will be a little bit, you know, connection with Doctor Strange. So I don't know much about the character. Um, I haven't seen much about the cast as well. I know the lead is being played by uh, the young actor from uh, Game of Thrones, who was also yep. in an episode of uh, Sarah Jane Adventures, who I think is very good. Yep. Finn Jones, I believe his name is. That's right. Uh, I, I saw one of the like there was a teaser trailer released and I went, meh. So um, I'm very open-minded and I'll, I'll watch it. But I'm, there's no excitement there for me about this one. But I just, but, but that's just because I don't know anything about the character. How about mm. you being you know, being so Marvel-biased that you are? Uh, <laughs> all Marvel is Marvel-less. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, mm. Yeah. You're going to cut that out to just punish me. Um, I might do both, actually. I'll cut it out and then put it back in. <laughs> take it out, put it back in, take it out, back in. We've reached peak nerd podcast. We are making, <laughs> we're making yeah, puns. Yeah, we level of innuendo. Yes. Um, I'm the same with Iron Fist as I am with Luke Cage. I know where he ends up, but I don't necessarily know how he gets there, so I am quite open-minded about it. Um, I don't know any of the cast aside from Finn Jones, and Rosie Dawson is popping up in it, which is always a plus. Um, and um, oh, um, David Wenham's in it, which is going to be good, because David Wenham, very good Australian actor, he's appearing there in some way, shape, or form. Ah, okay, yes. Yeah, he is. That's exciting. Um, so I'm looking forward to it, but I'm more looking forward to it in a way to figure out who the character is and what he has to do with the Defenders than I am looking forward to it as a TV show. Um, yeah. And I think that also brings us to the end of our second episode. Yeah, so until, until our next one, what are you going to be uh, hopefully consuming until the next time we meet? Um, I'm interested in The Crown, the new Netflix show. Speaking of Netflix, uh, Matt Smith is in a new one called The Crown, all based off Queen Elizabeth. Uh, I really enjoyed Victoria, which, of course, Jenna Coleman from Doctor Who. She played Clara. She had her own show playing Queen Victoria. Uh, I really enjoyed that one, and I am interested in seeing how a slightly more adult version on Netflix will be like with the marvellous <laughs> Matt Smith. So I'm probably going to get stuck into that as well as reading a bunch of new Star Wars novels that I just got. Oh, well, look at you go. Well, look at you. Well, I'm going to be uh, I'm, um, preparing myself to see Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the uh, start of a new epic uh, film franchise within the uh, J.K. Rowling mm. visiting world of Away from being the Harry Potter Wizarding World, so she's claiming it now as the J.K. Rowling Wizarding World. So she, Harry, is a part of that. But uh, seeing the the first part of this new now five part series, which is just really the casting of Johnny Depp in part two. <laughs> now we all know what happened to uh, the Hobbit, which was a one book uh, uh, adventure that was turned into three films, and how well that was received, and how well in inverted commas that was done I so i'm it. looking forward to seeing how pretty much a like a, a joke novella not even a novella more like a brochure uh, yeah. jk Rowling, a comic relief a couple of years ago how that's going to be turned into a five movie series uh it's going to be <laughs> 
uh, I'm laying back going, all right, JK. And she's actually written the screenplay. This is her first ever uh, film screenplay. Uh, I'm going to like, okay, JK, show us what you got. This is where, you know, you're, you're going to either make or break yourself, see how you go. There's so many, only so much goodwill you can get off your Harry Potter fans. Yeah, yes. I know I went and saw the Deathly Hallows Part 2 Midnight Screening, and that was packed. Like, I had to buy a ticket, and the guy was like, this is one of the final t- tickets. Just the, the, the other day, went and got a Midnight Screening ticket for Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I was, like, one of three people who have made a booking to go see it. It'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, good luck, JK. That's all we can say. Good luck. And I think we might be reviewing that one on a future episode. And uh, speaking of next time, we will be back for the third episode of Nerd Out. Uh, let us know what you want us to review. If there's any new films or TV shows or, or books or even graphic novels that you want us to check out, send us an email, feedback.nerdout at gmail.com, or send us a message on Facebook. All the links are in the description. We thank you very much for listening, and uh, until next time, make sure you nerd out. See ya. Take care. You were just listening to Nerd Out, Episode 2, featuring Rob Lloyd and Sandro Felcher. This has been an improbable podcast production. Feel free to contact us at feedback.nerdout at gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook for any review recommendations or feedback. All the links are in the description. The views expressed are those of the speaker and don't necessarily represent those of the other speakers or the network. The opening and closing music of the show is Denial by Dark Shadows. No copyright infringement was intended. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Frodo Baggins has jumped into the uh, the Dirk Gently world. Yes, he has, and he's got a very interesting American accent. It's not amazing, but it's not terrible, I guess, and his acting is quite good. Sandra, you do realise that Elijah Wood is actually American. Oh. And you say, his American accent isn't convincing? <laughs> well, no, his accent isn't actually that convincing. Well, okay, well, it's fine. Okay, that's going in the bloopers. There we go. We've got, we've got an outtake. We've already got our outtake. That's hilarious. I think that's what podcasts are meant to do, Rob. They're meant to like engage the fandom. That's the reason why we're here. If we didn't achieve some type of engagement with the fans, why the hell are we doing this, Sandro? I don't know. Probably got something to do with ego, and uh, well, that's probably <laughs> it. That's probably it, actually. <laughs> I think you've pretty much hit the nail on every podcast head. Why do people do it? Because of ego. <laughs>